Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Locked in Science. It is 30 minutes of science uh, from our houses into yours during this time of social isolation. My name is Claire and this week on the show um, we have some non-coronavirus updates. Is that right? Chris. It's pretty stunning. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Claire, because there has been other stuff going on in the world. Some, you know, some small things. Obviously, there's a, a really big story going on that everyone is occupied with. But I found another story which I believe is one of the biggest stories in the universe. What? Yes. Not just the biggest story on Earth at the moment. We're talking universal news. Exactly. This is this is an effort by physicists, of course, to try and understand why there is matter in the universe. Because, you know, if everything was created from nothing, there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. So why do we not see all this antimatter? Why is there only matter? Uh, it's been a puzzle for ages. And a new experiment done in Japan and published in April has given us a clue to, uh, to what may be behind that. So it uh, may not be as much of a mystery as it was. It, hopefully not, no. Ah, it's Again. nice to think about something other than um, the other things that we can't see, the invisible um, virus particles. Um, Stu, what do you have for us this week? Well, in other matters that matter, before there was a global health panic, uh, pandemic, the year was actually declared as a different kind of year of health. It was actually declared the International Year of Plant Health by the United Nations. So you remember last year was the International Year of the Periodic Table, which we hit pretty hard. We, on, we uh, went lost. hard on that, yeah. We really did. But this year is the International Year of Plant Health. And I thought, you know, we're, we're into April and we've barely even touched on this. So what I'm going to do is actually talk about... Why would you have a year of plant health? Why is it so important? Why has the uh, United Nations decided to say, hey, it's an international year of um, making sure your plants are healthy? Well, it's actually pretty important and it is very um, closely linked to science. It's, you know, some of our um, most important science goes on in keeping plants healthy. And uh, I just want to talk a bit about why that's um, a very important thing to be doing. I mean, it's so important to keep our plants healthy. They give us food. They give us the air we breathe. I mean, um, if if they're not healthy, then we're not healthy, right? Well, that's pretty much it. Without without the plants, we are all nothing, really, when it comes down to it. <laughs> that's not just because you are a horticultural scientist, is it? No, no. It's just that's just the truth. I'm sure yeah. every science thinks that they're the most important, but trust me, the plants are the most important. <laughs> did I did I hear someone use the term before biggest story in the universe? I think that, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, we can, I we, can, we can debate this until the cows come home, but they'll only come home when there's no more grass to eat, so. <laughs> 
it is um, really nice to see or hear that we are, um, you know, once again taking our sides on um, our scientific disciplines. But I also, um, I mean, you know, like a lot of people, I've been still reading a lot of coronavirus news, COVID-19 news, um, and keeping up to date about what uh, scientific research is coming out at the moment. So I just want to give you a little bit of a highlight for the most interesting uh, research that I read this week, and that was from scientists from the National Institutes of Health in the USA um, who've published that you may be showering your friends and neighbours in microscopic droplets of spit just by uttering the words, stay healthy. That's right. There's um, recorded videos of people saying this phrase and found that they could generate numerous droplets of spit ranging from 20 to 500 um, micrometers in size. And the most spit-laden part of the phrase stay healthy uh, it, does anybody want to have a guess about which which part uh, gives the most? I saw this spit? video. It was the the healthy bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's the th in healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That really gets the um, droplets going. Um, yeah. So the study didn't look at whether the droplets could transmit viruses, um, but what they did show was that covering your mouth with a damp cloth was enough to curb the emission of droplets. Uh, so watch this spitting space. And yeah, we'll follow follow up with that research as it comes along. Um, anyway, on to International Year of Plant Health and um, matter and antimatter, the biggest story in the universe. Now, one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the universe is why is there more matter than antimatter? Is this um, the first part of a joke? Because no, it's no? it's a serious question. It's very oh, serious question. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. Why did well, the antimatter cross the universe? No, it's not. It didn't. Stuart, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't because no, it disappeared. It disappeared. Because it disappeared. Look, this is an important question because this question is basically it's the heart of explaining why we exist. Because, of course, we're made out of matter. So if there wasn't more matter than antimatter, we wouldn't exist. So it's it's quite pertinent to our current state of being, some would What's say. the matter with you? <sighs> so, look. Now, we've basically known since the 1930s that every particle of matter has a kind of an evil twin, uh, what we call an antiparticle. So antimatter particles, they are literally a mirror version of matter particles, but with opposite charge as well. So uh, like an electron, for instance, has a negative charge. So an anti-electron has positive charge, which is why it's also known as a positron. Okay? Right. Got it. But what do you you know about antimatter? What's one of the things you know about antimatter from science fiction? Well, oh, well. There's all sorts of science fictions that you know you can make starships fly with various antimatter in different stories and stuff. But one thing I do know is if, if antimatter comes in contact with matter, it, dis- it all disappears or it all explodes or something. That's right. The um because they're opposites, they cancel each other out. They annihilate, and their combined mass turns into huge amounts of energy via E equals mc squared. Um, but the thing is that it also right. works the other way. So if you have a lot of energy, then you can turn that energy into pairs of particles and antiparticles. 
So this is where we get confused because say at the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, there was a whole lot of energy and creating all kinds of stuff. So why was it, did it create an unequal amount of matter and antimatter? Because you'd think that if you always get you know, a pair of each, then what, they should be exactly the same numbers. So this is, uh, this is a big puzzle. Uh, basically to solve it, we have to try and find somewhere in the basic laws of physics where there is not a symmetry between matter and antimatter. We've got to find somewhere where that symmetry is broken. Uh, it might sound like a weird thing. It does to me, certainly. But such symmetries have, in fact, been found. Some small sizes of this symmetry have been found. In the 1960s, there was, they, were, they first found this indication of some asymmetry, but it was just it was too small to account for the what we see in the entire universe. But it's, it's a precedent for what we should look for. So we need to keep looking. Now, a paper recently published in the journal Nature by the T2K Collaboration, it's, like a, it's based in Japan and involves nearly 500 people. And they were looking to neutrinos to try and find this asymmetry. So you, I'm sure you've heard of neutrinos before. They are fundamental particles. They're very unique among the particles that we know of. They have zero electric charge, hence the neutr bit in the name. Um, and they have a very teeny tiny mass. It was thought for a long time that they had no mass, but in the late 90s it was figured out that they had a very small mass. Um, they only interact with other particles via the weak nuclear force, and this makes them very hard to detect. So they're all over the place. They're, you know, they're flying through us all the time, but they generally don't interact with things, and so you don't know they're there. But this is actually a kind of a good thing because they're so unique and so hard to detect. It means that there's a lot we don't know about them. There's a lot still to learn. So they're a great place to look for new, exciting physics. Uh, what else do we know? Uh, we know that they come in, there are three different types of neutrino or what we call flavors. Flavors, did you say? Flavors. Okay. Oh, right. So your chocolate, strawberry and vanilla. Well, they're actually electron, muon and tau on, but you know, similar. The... the... <laughs> The Neapolitan of neutrino. Exactly. Neutrinopolitan. I was about to say something. I was going to say, unlike Neapolitan ice cream, they can transform into a different flavor as they travel through space. But if you bring your Neapolitan ice cream home from the supermarket and it melts a bit, it's probably going to mix up anyway, isn't it? That's right. So I mean, chocolate's the only one that's ever going to get eaten anyway, right? Yeah, that fluorescent pink one, I don't know what it is. It's not... It's not strawberry, it's just fluorescent pink. I don't know what it is. Anyway, so in this experiment, this is the T2K experiment, what it did, it involved, they created a beam of neutrinos by firing protons into a piece of graphite. Um, so this um, basically is a nuclear, nuclear reaction when they fired the protons at the graphite. It gave off a beam of neutrinos, which were then detected 295 kilometers away, <gasps> um, deep underneath Mount Ikeno, what? In Japan. How do they detect them? They have, it's a detector called the Super Kamiokande. It is a big, a big tub of water. It's 50 million litres of ultra pure water. Um, 50 million litres, if I convert that into standard units, that is 20 Olympic swimming pools. Whoa. And under a mountain. Yeah, under a mountain. It's basically it's so other stuff doesn't get in. Other cosmic rays and things don't get in and, and mess it up. So they just had this, yeah, really pure water, 20 Olympic swimming pools of really pure water, ultra pure, sorry, not really pure, ultra pure. And essentially what will happen is occasionally a neutrino will come through. It will hit a nucleus 
in in that water and it'll knock out a charged particle. Um, and these charged particles can be detected because they're moving so fast. So this is where it gets even weirder because light, you know, the speed of light is the fastest speed in the universe, but that's the speed of light in a vacuum. Inside, in water or another substance, light slows down. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when something, when a charged particle moves faster than the speed of light in the material that it's in, then it gives off the equivalent of a sonic boom, but in, in light. And so it wow. gives off this kind of eerie glow called Cherenkov radiation. If you've ever seen a picture of a nuclear reactor, yeah. like the inside of a nuclear reactor, there's often a blue glow. And that yep. is particles being given off and moving faster than the speed of light in the water and hence giving off this weird glow. So this is what they do. They look for some light being given off by a neutrino having to strike a, a nucleus in this 20 Olympic swimming pools. I know it sounds pretty unlikely. It is pretty unlikely, to be honest, <laughs> because they, from the paper they published, they, um, they ran this experiment between 2009 and 2018, and they collected 105 detection events, which they analysed. Now, 90 of these detections were neutrinos, and 15 of them were anti-neutrinos. So they basically detect a very big imbalance between neutrinos and anti-neutrinos. And this was at about a 95% confidence level. Um, so it was a huge difference. Uh, so this is a really good indication that they might have a clue to what's actually going on. Uh, it does, of course, need to be confirmed. Science always needs to be replicated. Uh, plus 95% confidence in terms of particle physics, that's nowhere near good enough. You need to get down to like, you know, 99.9999999% confident before someone will accept it fully. So yeah, they need to basically upgrade their equipment, do a bigger experiment. They are intending to upgrade over the next couple of years, although they're being slowed down a little bit by the current coronavirus pandemic, as are we all. Meanwhile, other new detectors being built that will examine this question. There is a hyper Kamiokande being built, which will be 10 times bigger than the super Kamiokande, if you're impressed by that. I am impressed by that. That is a lot of Olympic swimming pools. That is. In the US, they're also building a detector called the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE. <gasps> um, oh, wow. I love that acronym. I wonder if there'll, there'll be some sandworms in there as well. Who knows what's going on under the ground? <laughs> but yeah. Hopefully, if the sandworms don't get them, hopefully they will give us some clue to basically why we all exist, why there is uh, more matter than antimatter, and we will have the answer, why are we here? I'm not sure this year will be remembered for it, but 2020 has been declared the International Year of Plant Health by the United Nations, similar to how last year was the International Year of the Periodic Table. Do you think you'd feel a bit sort of jilted if you were, I mean, if 2020 Year of Plant Health had feelings, you'd feel a bit, ugh, COVID-19 really came and blew me out of the water. No yeah, one's I mean, focusing they, on plant health. Let's everyone's talking about human health all of a sudden. I mean, yeah, everyone's on. talking. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's talking about human health. Well, you know, I mean, this is this is one of the things that I mean. Aside from uh, human pathogens, human health is very dependent on plant health a lot of the time. So, obviously, those human health concerns have overshadowed the health of plants. But it is a very important issue, and it still does need awareness raised around it. Agriculture in the world 
is worth almost $2.5 trillion a year globally. And as the population continues to increase, it's a continuing effort to produce enough food and fibres to feed and clothe everybody. So, I mean, obviously, when you talk about agriculture, you think about the food side of things. But there's also things like cotton and wool, which are two of the biggest fibre crops. And there's a whole bunch of other fibre crops as well. So it's not just food, but there's a lot of other things. I, I, I don't know much, but I mean, you said cotton and wool. Doesn't wool come from sheep? Yes, but what do the sheep eat? Ah, I see where you're going with this. So the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that up to 40% of the food crops grown in the world each year are destroyed by pests and diseases. So that's almost half of what gets grown uh, ends up either not harvested or not suitable for human consumption. And the biggest problem with that is that it costs almost the same to grow a failed crop as a successful one. So even if you don't harvest it, you've still put all the effort into planting the seed, keeping it alive, and then at the end you get there and there's nothing to actually pick or harvest. So you've basically wasted all that money. And that's a huge cost, nearly half of the money that goes into growing food and and other agricultural crops gets wasted because of pests and diseases. So this is especially important in developing countries where you don't have sort of government safety nets uh, and margins are often very tiny so that farmers are forced off the land after a single crop failure often. They they can't afford to uh, keep farming and they've basically lost their livelihood. Now, political considerations aside for a minute, the production of food is not really a natural process. So, you know, thousands of years ago, humans decided to start farming things and basically what agriculture and horticulture are is technologies that look at preventing some natural processes and enhancing other ones to get a harvest. So most of these agricultural systems focus on a single crop plant, which is what the grower is trying to grow. They're trying to suppress all the other plants, get one particular crop, so they get a whole heap of it all at once that can sell on the market. And that saves them time in planting and harvesting different things. So they plant one thing once, harvest it all at once, make a big sale. But those conditions cause problems for farmers in in themselves because the growing of the same thing in the same place repeatedly can encourage the build-up of plant pests and diseases, as well as weeds, which is a whole other issue, that like similar conditions. So if you grow wheat, say, for example, in one place every year, you'll get a whole lot of weeds that grow in those conditions that that exist in the same life cycle as wheat and they get sort of mixed up with it. So that's an issue in itself is just the, the sort of design of agriculture kind of encourages pests and diseases the way, it, that, the way it runs. So prior to the 20th century, incidents of famine, which is when all the crops fail or enough of the crops fail that people don't get enough to eat, was very common, even in you know relatively developed countries. Even in Europe, there was commonly famines. Um, you know, every couple of decades, they would have massive crop failures. And pests and diseases were pretty much occurred due to natural cycles and natural conditions. So, and and for example, things like um, you know atmospheric humidity. When it's a humid season or a humid part of the world. That leads to things like fungal and bacterial infection of plants, which obviously either reduce the production of the plant or kill them altogether. So you can't get a good harvest in in some places as a result of that. So some parts of the world, they don't even grow things like grain. They rely on other kinds of crops that aren't 
affected by things like fungus. And also various factors in the climate lead to fluctuations in insect populations, which have a huge impact on crops. You've also got factors outside farmers' control like natural predator populations. So if you think about birds and bats, for example, they eat a lot of insects, but the populations of wild birds and bats go up and down according to the season, according to the year, according to how much there is for them to eat. So they're not a reliable source of um, control for a lot of these things. Now, the advent of manufactured fertilizers in the 20th century, which was a big breakthrough in science, allowed farmers who could afford those fertilizers a great deal of control over plant nutrients, which led to stronger, healthier plants, which means that they don't have as many pests and disease problems. They're strongly growing, understand how much nutrient plants need, and you can apply it as required. And on top of this, a better understanding of chemistry led to the development of pesticides, including insecticides and fungicides, which are a huge advantage in uh, protecting crop plants. There's also, while I'm talking about insecticides and fungicides, molluscicides. So molluscicides kill mollusks. And you might say, why are we killing mollusks? Oh, snails. Oysters. Oh, (laughs) Oysters, not a huge problem for plant crops. Slugs and snails, on the other hand, are a major pest of agriculture and horticulture, and they cause millions of dollars worth of damage every year in Australia alone. So you listed a whole lot of stuff here, like your molluscicides and insecticides, fungicides, herbicides. These are all, I guess, you know, the kind of things we're familiar with plants. But I'm going to ask a dumb question. I mean, clearly we are dealing with this coronavirus at the moment. Do plants get viruses too? Is that like a disease-causing thing for plants? They they do. They do. And um, one of the issues with viruses of plants, which is the same as with viruses of animals and human beings, is there aren't any really useful antiviral agents that you can use. So if you get um, viral diseases in plants pretty much all you can do is pull the plant out and replace it with something else um and it's one of the it's one of those big things or what they do is breed plants that are resistant to those viruses which is something you can do quite easily with plants because you can breed multiple generations within short periods of time um but that's really the only option you've got there's no real way to kill viruses in plants just as there's no real way to kill viruses in um in you know animal and human populations and it's very difficult to vaccinate plants against them as well because they don't have an adaptive immune system like animals and humans can you plant them like in groups of no more than two one and a half meters apart (laughs) you could try it but the main vector of viral transmission in plants is flying insects going from one plant to another and spreading the virus So it's, yeah, it doesn't even work. They can't be socially isolated. So there have been some issues with some of these chemicals and obviously improvements are continuing to find safer and more targeted options for pest control. And that's pretty much what agricultural chemists and biochemists do all of the time. Now, one of the other points of focus in the International Year for Plant Health is the ecological effect of farming. Land clearing for farming is a huge cause of habitat loss throughout the world. And that habitat loss means that potential environmental help for farmers 
is being lost in the form of predators like birds and other insects and also parasites and diseases of the pests themselves. So there's a huge number of species of, um, for example, parasitic wasps and there's hundreds of these species of parasitic wasps that lay their eggs in other insects and those little eggs hatch and eat their way out of the host insect. These are used as biological control in uh, in a lot of places, especially in enclosed places like greenhouse production and things like that. But if, you know, if you're in uh, an area where they are uh, present ecologically anyway, then if you clear away all their habitat, they're gone and they can't help you as a farmer. So... By preserving natural ecosystems around farms, it is becoming clear from research that the farms are less susceptible to invasion by pests and diseases because of the high diversity of other life forms in the area that don't feed directly on the farmer's crops. And that can lead to lower applications of chemical pesticides. And combined with the idea of integrated pest management, or IPM, reduces reliance on these kind of interventions overall. So integrated pest management is where farmers growing a particular crop have a very good idea of what pests and diseases they are likely to get throughout a growing season. And so they keep close records of the conditions in their area that those pests and diseases are likely to benefit from. And that allows them to predict pest and disease outbreaks quite accurately and then they can go in early and use a tiny little bit of you know insecticide or fungicide or whatever pesticide they might be using use a little bit of it once early on and that stops the outbreak getting out of control because they've predicted you know more or less what day or what week that problem is actually going to become an issue for their productivity so that's where you know farmers and 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 growers have been pushed to move towards for a long time the problem with that is Accurate record keeping is all very well if you've got a computer and people to collect the information, but obviously a lot more difficult in developing countries. So IPM is still sort of a developed world kind of approach to things. And on the other hand, people in developed countries can't necessarily afford the pesticides and fungicides and other chemicals that farmers in developed countries are using. So they don't really necessarily have the advantages of that either. Um, But as I said, over the year... I'm going to do some more stories where I focus in on some of these plant health uh, science-related questions. And if anyone has any specific questions about plant health, please send us an email at lostinsight at gmail.com or you can contact us over Twitter or Facebook and ask us a question directly uh, and give us some idea of what you would like to know. And that's all we have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Thank you for being with us from a distance in your own homes. Lost Locked in Science is recorded in our homes, as I said, but normally in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Broadcasting Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsightgmr.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1 or Lost in Science on 3CR on the Facebook 
um, or just uh, tune in wherever you've been listening to us next week when Chris, Stu and Claire get locked, locked in, in science. science. We are never going to get that right. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.